I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been but there. I love the entertainment business. Done and that. being hired by a company called Carroll Co. Pictures. And that. Because the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles. How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra? And now he's talking. Because of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast, Who the F*** is Roger Smith? In this edition, a video game from Steven Spielberg, a hot tub deal, and the opera. We ended up selling the company to the guy who ran Commodore Business Machines, um, who was a graduate of what I call the... Auschwitz School of Business Administration. We begin in the 1960s when Mr. Smith goes to Harvard. Well, in 1966, I graduated as an undergraduate from Harvard with a degree in modern European history. And I decided that I wanted to go to work on Wall Street. This was exceedingly unfashionable in the 1960s. Nobody, someone said to me, Roger, why would you do that? You're not stupid and your father doesn't own a brokerage firm. That's the only reason anybody would do that. I said, I think I want to learn business. I want to learn the basics. But every interesting job required you to have an MBA. And I wasn't about to spend two more years in Cambridge. And I didn't, and, I, and my father had cut me off. And I didn't have the money anyway. So I went to the, in those days, I literally picked up the phone, called the switchboard of Donaldson Lufkin and asked to speak to Dan Lufkin and got put right through and had a two-hour meeting with him, which he then said, look, I've got a meeting I've got to go to, come back and we'll have lunch. They were desperate for people. And um, he ended up trying to persuade me to go to the business school, which I had that option, but I didn't want to. And I've interviewed five firms and found two or three that offered me a job. And I went to work for the august firm of Wood, Struthers, and Winthrop. I debated whether I should tell them that despite my name being Smith, I am Jewish because I didn't notice any lancemen around the place, but I decided to keep it on the down low. And so uh, after I got there, I discovered, oh, there's Bert Siegel, thank God. <laughs> but I learned in five years a real education in following, and they gave me two industries, aerospace and entertainment. Why? Because they could save on airfares to California, both of them mostly headquartered there. I found that I had absolutely no interest or affinity for aerospace, but I love the entertainment business. But I stayed on Wall Street another four years as a portfolio manager, working for a wonderful, wonderful European man. We, we managed what in those days was considered a lot of money, $110 million. Today, it's a rounding error for anybody. And, and I learned, learned a great deal. But in that course of that, I came in contact with Steve Ross, who was the head of Warner, which had evolved from Kinney and then interesting corporate history. And I got hired as the head of investor relations, which is a sort of dog's body job in most companies. But I quickly uh, expanded into corporate policy. Uh, I got handed at some point worldwide public relations and management of the most important part of the company in a way, the, the acquisitions side. Uh, Steve Ross did the acquisitions. I proposed and he decided. But I, I had the rare experience of working 
for a truly fine human being who was also a powerful corporate executive. My, my experience in the rest of my life says, don't find those two qualities together very often. And he's got a mixed reputation. And then when I come across people who are negative, I say, if you have a negative view of Steve Ross, you didn't know him. If you have a positive view of him, you knew him. That's it. Uh, I'm still close to his children, etc. And what was the biggest deal you two did together? Or what did you suggest that he well, we did a little on. deal that I was a junior partner to another man on that was the, I'll tell you, the biggest one we, we blew, but the one that we did was in 1976, where I'd been there two years, for $26 million, we bought a little company called Atari. And we thought when four years later, it was doing $2 billion in revenue and $400 million in operating income. We thought we were the smartest kids in the world. We just stood sitting back and watching our stock options go up and thinking we're geniuses. And for the two or three people that don't know, Atari was a Oh, Atari was a pioneer in the video game industry. But it when began, it was $26 million, it did was, it have basically just Pong? Just Pong. Just Pong. <laughs> and we, we closed the deal. The final negotiation took place in the founder Nolan Bushnell's hot tub. There were, with, we only had one lawyer there. And uh, uh, we worked, worked out the deal. And it just was this you know, extraordinary thing of watching it grow. And I would, go, I would go there once a month and I had a sort of side line of, of I wasn't in the direct line of management, but I had to sort of know exactly what was going on because over time, 60% of the company was Atari. It outshined the movie business, the music business, the cable television business. When the collapse came with ferocious suddenness, I mean, at one point in December of 1982, every kid in America got bored with his Atari. They just stopped playing with it. They didn't care. They didn't want another cartridge. There and, was a kid memo that went yeah, out. Right, exactly. <laughs> there were the jungle tom-toms. And actually, I think the, the death knell was when we paid a huge amount to Steven Spielberg and MCA for the rights to make a video game of E.T., and it didn't sell. There literally was a point at which massive amounts of Atari cartridges and machines were buried in the Arizona desert as sort of landfill. I mean, that was, we got to that. Uh, we ended up selling the company to the guy who ran Commodore Business Machines, um, who was a graduate of what I call the Auschwitz School of Business Administration. He was a brilliant businessman, but the toughest son of a bitch. And it, it survived for a while in, in much reduced form. But at the time when we did make, we sold it in 84. And I turned to Steve and I said, I hope we understand this is the only thing we can do now. We got to get this off our back. But in 10 years, the video game industry will be bigger than ever. It's, it's not a dead industry. It's a, we have a, a dead entrant in it. I thought the internet would be the death of the industry. It's turned out to give it an incredible lease on life. It's bigger, bigger than it's ever been um, as they figured out how to monetize the internet, which the media industry has never quite been able to do. People but the idea of taking a movie and making a video game and vice versa is now extremely popular. Oh, yes, play. yes, yeah. We right were, idea, wrong film, maybe. Well, we, no, maybe the right film. We rushed it. We rushed it to get... Steve was determined to be out for Christmas. And we we closed the deal in September. That should be... And was it a bad game? It was a bad game. Gamers said... Gamers said, this is silly. Yeah. 
Um, in every area of business that we were in, except movies, I retained my at best semi-pro status, uh, often rank amateur music. So you never played an Atari game? Not willingly, but <laughs> <laughs> no, with, with my friend's children. Now, you know, I became, I became exceedingly popular with every teenager and, and, and middle schooler because I could get to the cartridges before they were on the market. And so I, there's no more Atari? No, it, it, it hung on in some very much reduced form for about 10 or 15 years after we sold it, but it's no more now. And the no. consoles are on eBay and there's maybe one in the Smithsonian. Excuse huh? me. Yeah, that's true. There's, no, there's one in the uh, Museum of the Moving Image in Queens. I saw that. But there is now the two hardest products to get for Christmas this year are the Sony PlayStation and the Microsoft whatever it's called, the Xbox, Xbox, Sony's Xbox, or the other one's Microsoft. Uh, they are back-ordered. They're sitting on, on ships on, coming in from China, and every kid's desperate for them. So they have both the online thing and the thing. It's like, it's like new, if newspapers had kept their print business while developing a, 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 an online business, they wouldn't be firing everybody. <laughs> but the experience there was wonderful in that my duties expanded to run the, including running the foundation and which I revamped from uh, just a little sideline that gave away a few million a year to medical and uh, New York civic and Jewish causes and to I said look we're in the commercial ends of the arts we should be focusing our giving on the non-commercial ends of the arts and we created the Warner Communications Fund for the Arts and I got three people to be the public-facing co-chairman, Beverly Sills, Leo Costelli, and a wonderful man who's probably pretty much forgotten these days, Brendan Gill. Brendan Gill had been at the New Yorker for years, but he was uh, sort of Mr. New York in, 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 in art, artistic circles. And who was Leo? Leo Castelli. Yeah. Yes. Oh, he. Oh, the most important art dealer of the 20th century okay. in, in New York, at least certainly. He, the founder of Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein, pop art with his virtual creation, and an unbelievably lovely man. And so that was a lot of fun. I mean, and the foundation went out and found worthy well, artists. Well, I, I hired two people. Made starving artists into not starving artists. Well, I had a rule: we don't give to individuals, we only give to organizations, because otherwise you'd be inundated with everybody wanting a favor for their father's first cousin, you know. And uh, so I said, no, we give just to institutions, but we found little more obscure ones. I said to Steve, I said, you know, we're not going to give it to the Met, we're going to give it to the, the kitchen or to the uh, drawing room and things, that, you know, more obscure people doing interesting work. When I met Beverly Sills, she wanted $450,000 to mount a new production of some 19th century opera. I forget which one. And I said, look, we want to create new artists. We don't, you know, they, you, I'm sure you can find some nice rich old lady who wants to see another production of the Meistersinger. What can we do that helps the art of opera? And we ended up underwriting the tryouts for new artists around the country, and which was a fairly extensive and expensive thing. But then also, she then came to us and said, we have been trying for years to put super titles over the operas so people... That's you? 
That's me. And it was controversial. We're sitting with the man who almost caused riots outside of uh, well, Lincoln yeah. Center. Well, the, the, the snobby opera buffs, oh my God, no one wants that. You, 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 you're supposed to know the libretto. Well, fuck you. Uh, you know, no one does. And I'm tired of being told that the count and, and the maid go in the garden and pl plight their troth. And there's 20 minutes of singing, not one word of which I understood. <laughs> so at first they did it as overtitles. The first opera that was done was at, at, at the New York City Opera, Beverly Sills singing the lead in La Cenerentola, which is Cinderella in Italian. And it ended up that, you know, they now have them on the back of the seat, so it's even easier to read it. But it's totally transformed the experience of going to the opera for a much broader audience. And at the time, didn't they try to placate the, the, snobs. Sorry, the snobs by saying, this is just an experiment or we're only going to do it for a yeah. limited time? Yeah. And oh, yeah. Initially, it was, it was just that. And then it was obviously, it, it did what's in, the most important thing in the entertainment industry. It put asses in seats. <laughs> That's what it did. And then there was no going back. And there were, it, it brought in people who wouldn't otherwise go. And I, I used to go because, you know, People I knew loved it, and I, 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 I once said, you know, you go there thinking you're going to have a good time. You come back claiming you had a good time. You just didn't have a very good time. <laughs> and now it's done everywhere? Everywhere, everywhere. But you it started it. here in started New York. It New started at New York City. The Met was a little heart longer coming around to it. With a grant from the, this the, foundation. The original one, the New York City Opera, was $450,000 from us. Yeah. But that moment led to the merger of Warner and Time by a rather interesting, circuitous path. At the opera? If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. I'll tell you. Okay. Steve was trying to convince Time to merge with us. There were a bunch of old Henry Luce allies on the board who had sort of you know, sniffy views of, you know, these entertainment industry translation Jews uh, are, you know, are we want to be in bed with these kind of people. Are they our kind of people? And the year again is when? This would be roughly early 89, okay. 89. And Beverly Sills volunteered to go and give a uh, endorsement of Steve and Warner, having been on our board at that point for about five years. And she went before these people and just said, I would put my hand in the fire for Steve Ross. He's that he's a man of 
impeccable his word is his bond, etc. And a $14 billion merger, I maybe, you know, I'm always in danger of doing what actors call building up my part. Because I, I, I mean, I know a part of the story, and I always think that the part I know is the big part, it's like the man watching the elephant. But I would say in this case, that was a crucial step that led to something that otherwise might not have happened. It wasn't over until the fat lady sang. Yes, exactly. Or this, Beverly's not that big, but she's not she, that big. But she, uh, she, but that's a, we won't we won't say that. Well, she's dead now. It's okay. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> she seemed like a lovely lady. She was incredible. I had her to my house one night for dinner. She came with her husband, Peter Greeno, and I somewhat cheekily sat her next to Morty Sills. Morty Sills was the leading tailor in New York. In those days, we thought paying $1,600 for a suit was outrageously expensive. Today, it's not so much. And Did you often try and invite people with the same last name? No, but this was worked out really, because yeah, he, he opened the conversation by saying, uh, Miss Sills, I gather we have something in common. Neither of us were born Sills. They were both born Silverstein. We were getting very on uh, very well, and I had seated her at an angle to me. I wanted to make sure that people treated her nicely. And I hear, uh, she says, well, tell me, Mr. Sills, what do you do? And he said, I'm a tailor. Well, she thought he was joking, but he said, anyway, the answer, the truth was, he wasn't a tailor. He ran a very fancy haberdashery emporium, and he didn't, he didn't sew anything. But he was a brilliant, interesting guy, and they got on like a house of fire. And it was a kind of wonderful moment. I noticed that uh, when she would be on the Johnny Carson show, he treated her with a lot of reverence. You know, he was, he, it was almost like having royalty on the show. I think she was one of these people who managed to combine humble origins, lofty achievement, and be very good at both. She didn't overplay the humble origins thing. She was, uh, but she was just, uh, she was an elegant, elegant person and, and, and also a brilliant singer. I mean, I, I don't know enough about opera to know one singer from another. I just listen to what people say. But we also ended up giving some money to the Met. And as a result of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. And I was seated next to Joan Sutherland, hmm. who's I work, I happen to really like, because I do like uh, that coloratura the opera from the 19th, 18th century. And I told her, I said, look, I said, Miss Sutherland, I have a terrible confession to make. So what's that? She said, in 1963, on my very first trip to London with a college friend, we are invited to dinner by the father of another college friend who is finishing having dinner at the Savoy Grill. He says, oh, by the way, do you boys care about opera? And my friend was about to say no, and I kicked him under the table and said, oh, yeah, yeah, we love opera. He, gave, he said, well, I have two tickets for Covent Garden next week. We're going to not be able to use them. Would you like them? And I said, yes. Well, it turned out they were for Norma being sung by uh, Maria Collis. And I mentioned this to an English friend of mine who says, do you know what those tickets are going for? It was like 100 pounds each and that, when that was two weeks salary for the average person. I said, really? Uh, is, have any idea how I might get that price? He says, well, obviously you wouldn't sell a gift. You're a gentleman. 
I said, not that much of a gentleman. <laughs> we got 150 pounds for the pair. My friend and I moved out of a cheap, crappy hotel into Brown's Hotel into a suite. We had the fancy dinners all on Maria Collis. You Joan, dined out Joan on Sutherland looks at me and says, taps me on the arm and says, my boy, you did just the right thing. <laughs> if none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the fuck is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.